Welcome to Relax Your Grid. I'm your host, Matt Brown. In this episode, I speak with musician, songwriter, composer, and producer Jamie Stone about three of his albums, as well as his new online business course for independent artists. Jamie has always been one of my favorite people to talk to about music and the music industry. Plus, he's an incredible improviser and such a fun person to play with in a jam session. If you'd like to support this program, consider becoming a Relax Your Grid superfan on my Patreon page. For just $2 a month, you'll get an exclusive bonus video with every episode, detailed show notes, plus I'll mail you the new and improved Relax Your Grid sticker to proudly display on your car, laptop, or Dobro case. Just go to patreon.com slash Dream to sign up. And if you're trying to learn to play the fiddle, banjo, or guitar, you might enjoy one of my higher tiers where I have banjo lessons, fiddle lessons, and guitar lessons available. Jamie Stone, welcome to Relax Your Grid. Good to be here, although I was already here. That's true. Well, I appreciate you remaining in place while the recording is, <laughs> is taking, taking place. <laughs> Perfect. Um, how are you? I, I noticed that everyone during a pandemic is starting by just checking in on their friends, and you're one of my friends. Uh, how are you folks doing? We are good. Um, it's summer and the kids have been in camp for half days, which means I have half days of quiet, um, which I love. And I've been kind of ebbing and flowing between feeling quite overwhelmed by the sudden coming backness of all things being in the world and really enjoying being out and seeing people and making music and then having tinges of remembering how grounding the last year was in so many ways um, and what it was like to not have my phone ring and to have days without any incoming emails and other such pleasures. Um, and, and that's just helping me calibrate a little bit to be like, oh, is this good? This is good, but is it too much? Should I be doing less? Rem- like basically remembering that I have choices. Um, unlike pre-pandemic times where I felt like I was just like responding to whatever happened. Um, and now I feel like I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit more careful about not doing too much and living... Um, a so-called balanced life, but that's a fast-moving target. Yeah, for sure. What creative ventures did you get up to during the pandemic, during the, these quieter times without all the emails that might not have come about if touring and, and you know, the record schedule and all that had just maintained? What, what creative aspects of yourself flourished in, in the pandemic? Yeah, I should say I feel incredibly fortunate and very, very much privileged to have had a really rejuvenating year in a lot of ways. And I know that's so not the case for many people. I didn't lose anyone close to me. I had a very mild case of COVID early on. um, And I had steady work producing through the whole time. So I didn't have that huge financial stress that most of my friends and so, so many people had. 
Um, so yeah, I recognize how very, very, very fortunate um, we were. And because of that, I was able to really enjoy having a lot more time. You know, you know me, I have like endless creative ideas and there's certainly never enough hours in the day to do them all. And I, I feel like some like long dreams, um, one of which was to, um, you know, spend a lot more energy on my home studio. Um, and I was able to do that and I recorded a lot of music and I wrote a lot and I did some co-writing and I spent a lot of time practicing guitar that I'd been wanting to do for a number of years. And I took some voice lessons and I took some time off when I needed it. And, um, yeah, it was quite fruitful really. Um, and I think for a long time, it's a funny because when I was a kid, I used to have this like long running fantasy that I could pause. Like everybody has like a superpower. They wish they could fly or what have you. And I always wanted to pause the world. So like I could keep doing what I needed to do. And it was actually a way I think of just like slowing things down that felt like they were moving too fast and I could catch up or think about what I wanted to say or do or just have time to like, you know, quiet down for a while. Um, and I really feel like this year was that wish, you know, felt like everything kind of paused and yet I had space and time to actually catch up on all these things that I've been wanting to do, you know, um, songs I wanted to write and, you know, time you know there's sometimes these like there's sometimes these like paths that I want to go down but I know they'll take a really long time and I don't have it and so I don't start so there were things like you know I really got deep into using Ableton for instance and that's just like such a deep well and a bit of a Pandora's box and I knew in the like three days that I had between tours in any other given year, it was just too big a project to start. Um, so, so that was really quite nice. Yeah. Well, I think Ableton, it might be a Pandora's box, but it's also a pandemic's box in this mm -hmm. case. Yes. Did you employ Ableton in the making of Awake, your most recent album? I got Ableton later in the process of making that record and I did all the drum programming on Troubled About My Soul in Ableton and I believe that was the only one that I actually used that for but you foresee using using it a lot more going forward yeah for a while much of the last year it was the place I started every song or tune Wow, cool. Father, he got worried. Worried all about his soul. Just as soon as his feet strike sand, he won't be worried no more. I am trouble. Do you remember who introduced us? Hmm. 
I can't remember. I feel like it was someone who said you two ought to know each other and you reached out because you were coming to Colorado as you do every summer. Right. And I remember coming to your house and meeting you and jamming with you and being blown away by your energy and and your improvisatory brilliance. Um, even if you're just playing an old time tune, you're you're one of my favorite improvisers. Um, and that was a long time ago. And I wanted I want to ask you about the first album of yours that really hit me. And I think it was the one that I became aware of after having met you. And it was the the record you made. It's a collaboration called Africa to Appalachia, and it was released 13 years ago. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how how you even came to make that record? Because you had to you had to leave this continent to make it. And you were collaborating with musicians who I haven't encountered in in our banjo world on on this side of the ocean. Yeah, well, before I started playing banjo, I used to listen to a lot of music from other places in the world. And among them were records by Ali Farkature and Tumani Giabate and Bubakar Traore. And it felt like even though there was many things that I loved, every time something really bowled me over, it was always from Mali. Um, and, you know, a lot of people consider it to be kind of the the golden panhandle of West Africa. Um, and there was just something about that music that really resonated with me. And so I made note of that and I started exploring more. And then when I started playing banjo, I remember learning an Ali Farkature piece pretty early on, like in the first few months of playing. And I heard everybody talk about how the banjo came from West Africa. I remember going to a workshop with Mike Seeger and early teachers of mine like Tony Trishka and Bill Evans played minstrel style banjo and would really make reference to this. And I feel like around that time, people, you know, it's it was still a little inside baseball, but people were becoming aware, at least in the more inner circles of banjo nerds, um, that the banjo came from there. And it was really puzzling because I had listened to all this West African music that nobody actually played African music. And that, that just seemed odd. I didn't really understand. Like everybody played sort of the first white adaptations of West African or early African-American um, styles. And so I started thinking about that and I, I started learning more um, African music on the banjo. And then a little while later, a friend of mine called me and said, I'm bringing over this musician named Mansa Sisoko from Mali to come play a couple festivals in Ontario. And we're just having these sort of salons. I want him to meet and play with all these different musicians and folks will just jam. And I think you'd be a good fit. And uh, even though there was a lot of people in that room, we ended up sitting like three feet from each other and like kept eye contact for like three hours and people came and went and somehow there was like something going on. Um, and the music felt really natural on the banjo. And then as soon as we stopped, I was asking questions and I played him this Ali Farkature piece 
and he kind of flipped out. And then every chance, so I, I ended up staying for a few days and he invited me to play a few shows just kind of impromptu. And I started making little field recordings right then and there. Um, and then I would go back and transcribe them and try to figure out how they would land on the banjo. And and then I knew there was something there, both with Mansa in particular, and this felt like the gateway to reconnect the banjo to West African music. Um, and then a little while later, I applied for a fellowship, um, a, a grant from the Ontario Arts Council, where I'm from, to go and do like kind of an epic trip, make field recordings, study with people, and basically do like the research to come back and make a record. Um, and so I spent three months in Mali in 2007. That's amazing. Where was the album actually tracked? Was that recorded in Ontario? It, yeah, we recorded it in Toronto. Interestingly, by the time I got to Mali, Mansa had married a woman from Quebec and moved to Canada. And at first I was really disappointed because I actually didn't get to see him there. And then it was a total blessing because when I got back, you know, he was a train ride away and we spent a year kind of going back and forth to each other's homes and um, planning repertoire. And I was able to, you know, send for a few people that I had met in Mali to overdub from afar and then work with musicians, both from the Toronto music scene and people I was starting to connect with, like Casey Dreesen and Grant Gordy um, in the States. And so it was like a coming together of all these different corners of the world. Oh, my goodness. Well, one feature of my podcast guests, um, several of you have an album where like the very first note of the very first track just like transports me. And that's true of of track one of Africa to Appalachia and just that those opening moments, I just, I feel like the world has stopped for me and I'm just in this like beautiful, peaceful, wonderful uh, place.
I thank you for making that that album and from everything I know about you, you're the kind of person who does the work. Like you went to Mali for three months. It wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a weekend there. So you could say you'd been there. You, you took the time cause you, that's how you pursue these projects. And it's really interesting to look at your output from, from there to the present, because I, I want to ask you about the Lomax project, which was another, um, incredible undertaking. Um, but there are albums where you just dedicate yourself to music of the world, both uh, the real and the imagined worlds. And and I really, I don't know of a banjo player who has done the full scope of what, you, of what you're doing on each album. And that's why I'm so excited to know you and, and to learn from you and to have you on this program. Um, can you talk about why the Lomax Project was an important album for you to make? Yeah. Um... I had long been aware of Alan and John Lomax's field recordings and loved very much like you, um, reveling in the history of these old songs and finding, you know, the arcane corners of tradition and trying to, you know, find lesser known material and bring it back into circulation. And um, so I sort of loved that whole process. And every album in a way is an opportunity for me to delve into a whole kind of sonic or cultural world. And it, it sort of gives me a reason to go that deep and to make those connections with other musicians and, um, you know, more than I can do just from my armchair. And so um, I read Alan Lomax's biography, the one that John Swed wrote called Alan Lomax, The Man Who Recorded the World. And the stories just like lit me up. I mean, every time I read about any one song or place or source for um the field recordings i felt like oh i want to learn that and i want to hear that and you know what could we do with that and um so i had thought about what it would be like to gather together musicians who i loved who each had one foot in the folk world but also who had a singular thing going on or maybe they also were steeped in another kind of music and because I've always felt like an outsider in a way, having people that are a little bit outside um, helps just, you know, everybody's a little off kilter and then I feel comfortable or something. Um, and so I wondered what it would be like to gather all these musicians and focus just on these old field recordings, unearth songs, and then see what, new ways we could play them and reimagine them. And that was the concept. And really it was not about performance or recording at first. Um, we just had these, like I called them collaboratories and the gigs were really the way that we paid for them. So every time we did a show for the first couple of years, we would spend three to seven days just hanging out 
playing each other field recordings, trying to turn each other on to different songs and sounds, and then experimenting with different ways we could work with it and have way more material than you could ever have um, actually in the final show. Um, so it was really process oriented. Um, it was that was the dream. Um, and then we would do a show so that we could, you know, pay for everybody to be there um, or play a festival. And um, and then after a while, it felt like, oh, wow, we should probably document this. And that's when the record came. And it wasn't until the record came out that I kind of put together a more steady touring version of it and went out on the road. So you had a chance to workshop or collab collaborate this music into existence long before the studio session. It didn't start in the studio. No, not at all. You know, every one of the constellations of people and even ones that never actually played together on the record did these little collaboratories or did a series of shows. Like I remember there was even a tour that was with Bruce Malski, Julian Lodge, and Margaret Glaspie. And it was really about the people. Like a lot of it, the instrumentation made no sense. Sometimes it was like three guitars and banjo. Um, but it, it was just about wanting to make music with those particular people. Well, it's it's a remarkable project. And I, I'm excited to learn that backstory because as a traditional old-time musician, as one of the things I do, I've struggled for a number of years with this concept of how best to not represent, but how best to to be an old time musician, given that so much of my favorite music in that genre has already been recorded. That's what those field recordings are. And maybe the recording technology is not doesn't produce a, a product that's easy to listen to to our ears, but does an old-time musician really need to sit down and play their best reinterpretation or exact replica of something that Lomax captured or any of these other field recordings? Um, and so I like ideas like yours of not even trying to make a facsimile. Like it's not about making a high-definition version of of some original from the past. It's about making new music, but honoring the past and honoring these musicians who were captured a long time ago. Yeah. Just a few days ago, I did um, this program 
that the Library of Congress is sponsoring where they have about 100 people come on Zoom and hear the backstory of an old field recording that they have in their archive and then teach everybody to sing and everybody sings along muted. Um, And then we have a discussion about the whole process. And part of that is we played the original Bessie Jones version of a song that I sang. And, you know, what I said was totally true. Her version is perfect. It doesn't need anything. It doesn't need another version like that. I wanted to do something kind of wildly different that hopefully I feel, you know, honors the heart of the piece and and helps bring people in and kind of scatter these seeds so another generation can sow them um, and see what will come and hopefully usher people back to listen to Bessie Jones again. But with very few exceptions, it felt like if I was just going to do what they did, why not listen to them do it? Exactly. Um, but I can offer my own perspective and, and also I just can't help it. You know, like right. <laughs> these songs come into my orbit and wind up steeping with the things that are already just around me at the time. And even the versions of songs change over the years because I'm changing and what I want to hear out of them and what I hear in them is shifting. Um, And I feel like that's what I call the folk process. That's what it is. We're like playing broken telephone across the generations. And then we're also even playing broken telephone with ourselves. You know, like I feel like hopefully if I can stay open enough, I come back to material after a few months or a year and I hear it different and I sing it different and I go, I can't remember how I used to play it, but maybe this is how I'll play it now. That is such a, it's such a good point. I, I have a very vivid memory of when that concept actually sunk in for me. And it, it's with someone with whom, um, you and I have both recorded. So Tim O'Brien was on this Lomax project of yours. I was very lucky to get to work with him for my album, My Native Home. But before I ever did that, I remember going to one of his shows. I forget where it was, but he played some song that I'd heard before, either on Fiddler's Green, off of Fiddler's Green or Songs from the Mountain. And I was staggered <laughs> to, to hear him play the song quite differently than it was on the record. And in retrospect, that is the most obvious thing that could have happened. Like, why would I expect anyone um, in any genre? Not It's not just a jazz thing, but in any any of these genres. Why would I expect someone to, to sing something in 2008 the way they did it in a studio in 2004 or whatever? And even within traditional music, or especially within traditional music, I think we have to free ourselves from ever thinking that, that we're stuck in, in these, in these hard, you know, prisons (laughs) of the past, even of our own pasts. Yeah. I mean, I like to imagine that back in the day, you know, when this music was truly the people's music and if you needed a song, you had to make it yourself, um, before recordings and, you know, when radio was not 
ubiquitous. I imagine somebody like blowing through town, playing a song, you hear it once, and then they're gone. And you're dealing with your memory of it, and you might misremember lyrics, or maybe you don't play the same instrument they do, or and you slowly kind of piece together something that is a combination of what you remember and what they did and what you end up inventing and and then somebody might come and record that and then we learn it note for note you know right <laughs> but i i think the whole thing was was always a lot more fluid than it seems yeah it took me a while to to realize that and i i still forget it sometimes mhm um, but all it takes is hearing, like you're alluding to, two two field recordings from the same person, but from a different day, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you and, and we start to start to hear things like that. What was it that brought you to the banjo in the first place? Because you you mentioned that you were making music prior to the banjo. Um, how did how did you come to the instrument? I heard Bela Fleck's Tales from the Acoustic Planet, Volume One, and it quickly became my favorite record how old would you have been um 15 and it actually took me a while to realize he played the banjo not because i didn't know what it was but because what i loved about that record was the music like the composition and just the whole vibe and and the like collaborative nature and the interesting worlds that combined, you know, like having Paul McCandless from Oregon and Sam Bush on the same track. And (laughs) um, there was a kind of organicity about it that I really loved. And then, of course, after a little while, um, I was like, and the banjo is really cool. Um, And then I was listening at the same time, really, to old time and bluegrass music. Um, and then slowly I put two and two together that like, oh, wow, these are all possibilities on that same instrument. And then I saw Bela play um, at the Paramount Theater in Vancouver right when I turned 16. And it totally bowled me over and turned my life upside down. And that was that. I love your banjo playing, Jamie. And when I first met you, what we did is we played fiddle and banjo. And I'll do that any chance I can. Um, But I find it very interesting that your latest album really doesn't have much banjo on it. And there's a very good reason for it. um, A very sad reason for it. You spent a number of years making this album, A Wake. And it unfortunately came out right as the pandemic was occurring. And so you haven't had a chance to properly tour the record but can you tell us what what led to you making the album and why the music isn't the beautiful banjo music that we know and love from your prior releases but why it's so different yeah you know for a long time I felt like I had a record of my own songs with lyrics in me and I strangely felt like It was like I could see it off in the distance and I was very slowly moving towards it. Um, And and I just knew that at some point 
I needed to do that. Um, and then I heard a record by the band Bon Iver called 20 to a Million. That's probably my favorite record of all time. And it really blew me away. Like, I don't know if anything had blown me away since hearing that Bela Fleck record. Um, every th- it sort of just like dissolved everything I ever thought I knew about music and possibilities of sound and and like emotional depth that you could feel from music. Um, and I basically like listened to it every day for a year. And that really started to kind of set things in motion as like, okay, there's this whole other world I want to explore. And I knew that it was going to be a radical shift and that I didn't want to do it with the like pressures of an album cycle and, you know, knowing I had a CD release tour booked a year out that I needed to make it in time for, etc. Um, so I just decided to give myself as long as I needed and also earmark a couple of months just to start writing and finding new sounds and not performing. And so I spent a long time planning to have this summer off. Um, and then literally the day I was supposed to start writing, um, my brother died very suddenly, um, and tragically. And, um, of course, in addition to the loss and the grieving and everything, I I was actually also grieving like that time. Um, and yet it was also serendipitous because first of all, I didn't have to cancel anything, which was a miracle, you know? So, um, I was able to just, you know, cry in bed, which is mostly what I did for a few months. And then I started writing and writing and writing and writing, and then very quickly realized that I had a sense that I wanted to make this kind of departure of a record, but I didn't know what it was going to be about. And then it was suddenly really clear. I started writing songs, both about, you know, my brother and my experience of losing him, but also you know, writing the story of who I was becoming as somebody that had gone through that experience and was reflecting on my own life in a different way um, and ended up spending three years um, making that record. And one of the things I decided early on was that I wouldn't play banjo and I wrote mostly on instruments that I didn't know how to play. Um and of course writing lyrics and singing lead pretty much for the first time um, was all just like a giant creative learning curve. Circle, it's coming undone. August and after you won't feel the sun. I see you see me from up on the heights. You 
tell me everything's gonna be right We wind it in circles that questions entwine What you would give me, I'd give it in kind The trees are still ringing, I'm ringing your phone All of these boys have to go alone You're lost, I'm lost, we're all the same you say, I say, we say his name A light, a light, a life is made He's here, he's gone, don't let it fade The salt dissolves, your eyes are clear My hands, your hands, a single sphere Awake, awake, the light has come Unache, unache, the past is numb We scatter your ashes and out at the break Gather up all that you left in your wake It's hard to just live in the air and the sea With nowhere to land, you got nowhere to be it's like you ain't Well, I, I'm so sorry for your loss, and I remember when you played me some of those tracks from the very room where you're beaming to me mm-hmm. from. Um, and it really hit me hard the first like just the intensity i mean um i didn't get to meet michael but the intensity with which the music hit me when you when you hit play um i'll never forget that and i think i think maybe you gave yourself a a great gift by dedic- you know dedicating the the content of this album to processing your grief and and remembering him and um serendipity is not the right word but the the fact that you got to use this time in this way um and and to have this memento and this um uh this talisman for him and for yourself is is, is i think a beautiful thing in a very very sad way yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I feel. Yeah, it's amazing to have a record, I guess, pun intended, you know, of that process. I think so many people, and, you know, maybe when we think about the more than half a million people just in the US alone that passed away from COVID in the last year, you know, so many people have such. Uh, invisible grief right and and so it was one of those times where actually I really appreciated having an art practice and having a medium um, that I can use to you know process everything that happened and then come away with something both that I can share and return to and you know it's like a, a chronicle of those experiences and even by the time it came out i could use it as like a yardstick to see where i was at you know like there were songs that i had cycled through a lot of those feelings you know things that were like angsty or things that were like really sad it was like by the time the record was actually finished i was like oh yeah i'm not there anymore like i can I'm so glad I have those songs. And, you know, there's actually been a few songs that I haven't even sung since the record came out because I don't need them currently anymore, you know? Right, but you needed them then. For sure, yeah. Well, I hope I hope if anyone 
who's listening to this um, has lost someone and is looking for a way of of um, processing that a little bit, that this record will will prove to be a balm because it's a beautiful work of art. Um, and I think it's in addition to being helpful to yourself, as I can hear it was, um, I think I think it's a it's a gift to others as well who and, you know, invariably we all deal with loss and grief and art is one of the ways to best soothe our souls. Do you have, you've mentioned two albums that have really transformed you or like fueled your fire. Um, Do you have a particular album that like late at night, if you can't fall asleep, if you couldn't fall asleep, that you would put on just to kind of soothe your soul? A couple things come to mind. One is a record by the German keyboard player and composer Niels Fromm called Solo. That's one of my favorite albums. And he plays an instrument called an una corda. Um, there's only a handful of them in the world. And actually, we used one extensively on Awake. Um, and it's an instrument he invented with a luthier, and it's a piano where there's one string per hammer. Um, and there's no chassis on it. Um, it's all the mechanics are open. It's like an, you know, inside out piano. Um, and so you hear a lot of the mechanical noise and it's much quieter and it's incredibly intimate. And then there are these layers of cotton and felt and linen that are placed between the hammer and the strings to dampen it in all these beautiful ways. And, um, anyway, that record is incredible. That record is also so beautiful in the space between the notes. It's, uh, we used to use it actually, um, to get the kids to fall asleep in the car. And my theory is there are some songs that are so slow that you can actually fall asleep between the notes of the melody. Cause that moment where you're like entranced and waiting for the next note, you can just like fall into a reverie. Um, so that one definitely, definitely fits your criteria of, you know, um, music to put you to sleep. Um, and then there's another record that I really love, um, by a Welsh harpist named Katrin Finch in collaboration with a West African Kora player, um, named Seku Keita. And I don't think I can even pronounce the record. Plus I don't remember it, but, um, it's not hard to find. And there's a song on there in particular called Future Strings. That's so glorious. There's like, you know, 40 plus strings of, um, you know, Western and African harps all crisscrossing. And it's one of those collaborations where they really met in the middle. And I, I feel both of them being pulled very far into the other person's tradition in a way that they made something altogether new. And I do love that record. 
Wow. Well, thanks for sharing. That that sounds great. And it, the latter definitely sounds like the kind of project you've embarked upon before, where it's it's not about comfort zones. It's about the space halfway between yours and, and someone else's, maybe. Early on in our conversation, you mentioned that you had a chance during the pandemic and, and quarantine to build out your studio. And I happen to know that you, one of the things you did in that process was record the debut forthcoming album for a young banjo player whom we both know named Max Allard. And Max has prov- provided some of the incidental music on the first couple episodes of the podcast. So listeners have heard his boogie woogie banjo sounds occasionally um, on prior episodes, as well as some electric guitar riffs. Um, and Max is going to be a guest in a couple months to talk about that album. But I, I would just love, since you produced the album and engineered it, to just get a little, g- give give me and the listener a little preview of what what's coming from Max and that album and what it was like to make it there in your basement. Yeah. Um, Max is such a wonderfully deep musician and composer and has such a brilliant mind and um incredible way of getting around the banjo um and someone that already has a sound so singular and well developed um at his you know young age it's quite incredible so yeah it was a real joy you know we spent um a number of months back and forth on zoom arranging things and he was always so responsive so he'd bring in something that certainly felt like it could have been perfect as it was and i would share what i was hearing and possibilities and in real time he he would rewrite things right then and there both incorporating suggestions and then also immediately pivoting them into things that he was now finding interesting. Um, and, and so that process was, you know, really, um, yeah, it was just, it, it felt like such a kind of like generous back and forth, um, sharing of ideas. And then, um, yeah, we recorded here and it was so nice to be home and, you know, we did the entire thing without headphones no click most of what you hear on the record are full performances um i am someone that loves to edit and yet the way that this project went down um most of them were just like untouched you know full takes of things which is just a testament to his playing and concentration (laughs) um and um and just deep deep musicianship um so yeah it was just great we had a really 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 good good experience working together and i'm super stoked for people to hear this record because it sounds like nothing else well i'm i'm sorry you didn't get to edit more (laughs) (laughs) but i'm also glad you didn't have to um i've heard i've heard a, ver- a version of the mixes from from a while back. So I don't know that I've heard the most recent, but um, I'm so, so proud of Max. I, I met him years ago at the Old Town School. Um, 
in a room where you and I once had a jam when you, you came to play a show uh, at the Old Town School in Chicago. And you and I had a, a jam in the first floor of the new building on Lincoln Avenue. And then you played a show, I think, upstairs. Well, that's the same room where I met Max and his brother. Um, I forget which came first, meeting you or uh, jamming with you in that room or meeting him in that room. But um, yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant record. And um, it's very exciting to hear what what might come next. Um, and you, you two play a duet on there, right? We do. Um, it was spontaneous. He had this idea that we would play a duet. And I actually hadn't played banjo in months at that time. And we, I thought, well, why don't we just write something together? He had started something, um, but it wasn't finished. And I was like, let's just, let's just start from scratch. Um, and so it was really fun. We wrote the whole thing together in an afternoon and recorded it the next day. I seem to recall that there were like some issues with his banjo. So did you both record on the same banjo, this duet or how? Oh, did yeah, it- I think that day we were going to just gather around a pair of microphones and record together, but the fifth string had got dislodged in his banjo. And so we recorded separately and he would record a section, then I would go in and overdub over it. So that was actually kind of fun um, to kind of pass it back and forth. And it was one of your banjos, I think, that you used for mm-hmm. that track. We yeah. have we have nearly identical banjos. This makes sense. Well, I want to leave plenty of time to talk about this this project that you're launching because I I remember chatting with you about it and helping you a little bit with it um, soon after I moved to Colorado. It's called Compose Your Career, and it comes out of this workshop that you gave in a number of environments where you taught anyone who'd come um, how to book themselves and how to how to be the business person when you're also the artist. And I would love for you to give not the elevator pitch, but the, you know, maybe the the medium sized concert hall pitch of what Compose Your Career is and why why it's going to be useful to folks because i i certainly know it will be and i'll be sending it around to everyone i can think of yes yeah, so composer career is an online course and the idea behind it is it teaches people how to make a sustainable living as a musician um, and it's essentially a business course for the kind of people that would never take a business course. (laughs) Um, And that was the design all along Um, because I have so many friends that are incredible artists and they struggle and continue to struggle figuring out how to do all of the back-end, behind-the-scenes things that are required to make a living, to book tours, to actually do tours and manage them, and all of the correspondence and publicity and marketing and social media and branding and um, project development. And it's a fairly overwhelming task that most people 
have no guidance with and very few tools and no support for. And then everybody's kind of alone, banging their head against their laptop, trying to invent this whole thing from scratch. Um, and I was one of those people. Um, and I found that I happen to have a knack for a lot of those things. And I think because I've always played music that doesn't fit neatly anywhere, I had to kind of invent my own space. And I knew that nobody was going to call me to play bowed banjo on their record. Like if I was hearing some unusual way to play the instrument, I need to do it first and find spaces to do it in. And then if I wanted to make a living at it and play with the kind of people that I wanted to play with and eventually support a family that I needed to be just as creative about how I make sure that I earn money for all of these um, flights of fancy um, and creative pursuits. Um, so anyway, I folks started asking me, mostly friends, if I could do some coaching or mentoring. And I started to do that about maybe 12 years ago. And then eventually started teaching this workshop to kind of pilot this idea of whether I could reach more people and um, was there really a need. And we did them in New York, Boston, Toronto, London, and Boulder, and everyone sold out. And then I realized that there was so much more to teach than just how to book yourself without an agent. And so I realized that, you know, an online platform where people can learn anywhere in the world and it didn't require me having to travel or one-on-one, -on -one, one person at a time, share these skills, um, it felt like the right thing. So it's been in development, honestly, for almost a decade. Um, and what's happened is I've continually um, been otherwise engaged playing music. And, you know, to be honest, I never really wanted to make an online course. I just wanted to play music. And yet the idea continued to be relevant and nobody was doing it. And so um, finally this last year gave me a chance um, and I teamed up with an old friend and peer, Clay Ross, who I've known for a really long time and who has been an incredibly successful independent artist. He self-managed his band, Ranky Tanky. They've won a Grammy. They were like topping billboard charts and touring all over the world. Um, and having, having a teammate really has made a big, big difference to actually finally making it happen. Um, and so we're, um, opening registration this summer and the first course will launch in the fall and it'll run twice a year. And what's the easiest way for folks to sign up to be in the know about this? Yeah. Um, composeyourcareer.org um, is where you can find out all the details and everything that's in the modules and soon to be announced guest faculty, which I'm really excited about. Um, and they can at the moment sign up to hear about when registration opens or likely by the time this podcast airs, um, registration will be open for a short time before we actually launch the course. Um, and we're also 
on Instagram at Compose Your Career. Love it. All right. Well, before I let you go, I can't think of a better guest to ask the question that is posed in the title of this podcast. So as I wrote to you earlier today, the, the concept behind Relax Your Grid is one where we muse on the value of quantization or the value of not having quantization. Um, and I know that you've studied a variety of music, some of which benefit from, you know, the computer aid of a click track or a drum machine. Um, and then others where, whether it's microtonality or rhythmic um, pulling and pushing, it wouldn't make sense to try and fit it into the box. And I'm just going to leave it open-ended and just, and listen to, to what, where, where you think there's value in, in computer generated um, accuracy um, and, and where it's better to just let it be and, and have these musics where you can't easily put things into, into boxes. Such a deep topic. Um, hard to even know where to begin because there's like a vast number of rhythmic possibilities and feel and groove situations within even one kind of music. Like it would be tempting to start comparing hip hop to bluegrass, but like even within bluegrass, for instance, you know, you hear these recordings of Bill Monroe and the bass player is playing reasonably metronomic time. And because the bass player is doing that, Bill Monroe sometimes will start a solo like so far ahead of the beat, you know? And yet if everybody went with Bill, then the whole thing would rush. So the ability to push and pull the beat has to be in relation to something, right? There's nothing to relax if there is no implied grid. And so the magic, just like intonation, is that there is a definable, you know, grid or measurement, you know, that you could use and the way that people push and pull, you know, the way that an oboe player will play something as they'll call like a little bright that will give the third in a chord, you know, a a certain sheen. Um, That's part of what a classical oboe player understands is the medium to work with, you know, Um, and the same way, you know, a piano will be in tune, but the singer might sing a third that's a little flat. Uh, You know, that is a big part of the language of the blues, for instance. Um, And so it's really that relationship. And I don't even want to say we have it between kinds of music. We have it between people, even in the same band, right? Like you can have the banjo player actually playing with a lot of bounce, you know, with a lot of swung sixteenths and then a mandolin chopping very much more metronomically. And that rub is actually what creates groove. Um, and, and so, 
you know, one of the shining examples that I feel like many modern musicians look to is the D'Angelo record, Voodoo. Um, my favorite track on there is called um, One Mo Jin. Um, and it's just like the nastiest, like it feels like there's a mile between bar lines because there are so many different time feels being insinuated all at the same time. And it's like, you know, if we were to get philosophical about it, you know, it's like, it almost is like what humanity's like, right? Like we think of a neighborhood and what makes a neighborhood, I think great is its diversity. You know, it's the fact that you have like people of different backgrounds and cultures and classes all hopefully coexisting you know um and it's dirty and it's clean and it's contemporary and there's old things and it's like that's what makes something a neighborhood really dynamic right um and i feel like the music is the same way you know we want old things and new things and things that are a little pitchy and things that are like satisfyingly perfect and time that's pushing and time that's pulling and this sort of like elasticity and yet sometimes nobody's playing but everybody's implying a certain metronomic beat and and I will say just in relation to technology and the the grid those things can all happen like with or without a click like I remember um, uh, someone I studied with who was a solid influence for me. Um, Dave Douglas is a great trumpet player and composer from New York. And I remember him doing these metronome exercises where he'd leave the metronome on and play completely out of time and then come back in again. Or have the metronome as low as it can go so there's a lot of space between each click. And then you would play like free phrases at different tempos but actually always be feeling this larger pulse um and so you know it's like you gotta you gotta keep it between the ditches but still there's like a lot of room to move um and that is what really interests me well that's a beautiful thought and let's leave it there i I want to live in a diverse neighborhood and I want to keep it between the ditches. Jamie Stone, thanks so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I always learn something. I'm always, every time I talk to you, I walk away inspired. I'm like, I'm going to go do this and that because Jamie just like lit this fire in me. So thank you for, for being such a wonderful instigator and such a good friend. Likewise. Thank you, Matt. Make amends Mouth the words you couldn't say You'll be cured of all the things You forgot to pray First reverse 
your course, cast a curse. There your eyes tumble over. Now you rise up your bed under Chiron's glow. Your sail is full. The harbor's past. You feel the pull. It's ten below. You hardly speak. Come below. The islands swim out past the creek. Do you feel it all? Ah, ah. Can you see it all? around the dark Stars align, Saturn turns Redesign everything you ever learned So keep it pinned To your back and feel the wind Mind the hurt, I couldn't stay Fever burns everything Your Grid is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Matt Brown. Tim Brown provides post-production assistance. Otto Allard is my designer. Max Allard plays the banjo and guitar interludes sprinkled throughout each episode. Our theme song is The Big Coyote from my 2015 duet album, Speed of the Plow, with past guest Greg Reich. Tune in next time for an interview with my fiddle teacher and hero, Bruce Molsky, who played and sang on Jamie Stone's Lomax Project. After that, we'll have an episode with Max Allard himself to celebrate the forthcoming release of his debut album, which Jamie produced and engineered. But until then, relax your grid. 